focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have Handan and Shin Sabyak from Arirang News joining us in the studio. Welcome back to the studio. Good evening. All right, uh, we are going to start things off with North Korea because yet another provocation by North, the North. Uh, Pyongyang having fired yet another ballistic missile towards the East Sea. On this Wednesday, Sebyuk, start us off with the details of this. So North Korea fired a ballistic missile towards the East Sea on Wednesday. So the Joint Chief of Staff said it detected a ballistic missile fired from the Sunan area in Pyongyang at around 12.03 p.m. that flew 470 kilometers at a top altitude of 780 kilometers. So the JCS urged the North to immediately stop its ballistic missile test, criticizing them as a clear breach of UN Security Council resolutions and a grave threat that undermines peace on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. So the latest launch marks the North's 14th show of force this year, and it came after the North test fired what it claimed to be a tactical guided weapon on April 16th. Uh, the JCS said it is monitoring related movements in preparation for any additional launches, and Wednesday's launch came when South Korea is set to have a new administration in a week. Well, North Korea has a history of raising animosities with weapons tests when Seoul and Washington inaugurate new governments in an apparent bid to boost its leverage in future negotiations. What's interesting is uh, what some of the, uh, I guess, uh, officials here in the country are saying that it's uh, presumed to be a Hwasong-15 ICBM uh, that's been disguised as a reconnaissance satellite launch. And uh, I mean, before they said it was a Hwasong-17 in the previous ICBM test, but it turned out it wasn't. Now they're going back to Hwasong-15 ICBM here. But guys, I mean, again, North Korea in some ways could be very predictable and yet unpredictable uh, many times as well. But uh, what is behind North Korea's latest uh, missile provocation here? Because we're about a week away from the new administration. It does seem a little bit early. Joe Biden is not yet in South Korea. Uh, Let's start off with you, Tanya. You know, we can get some clues from all the political situation surrounding the Korean Peninsula at the moment. First of all, North Korea has declared to the world that it will continue to boost its nuclear capabilities during its uh, large-scale military parade held last month. And this also comes ahead of South Korea-U.S. summit set to be held in about two weeks' time. And like you said, SJ, of course, this comes just six days ahead of the launch of South Korea's new government, the Yoon Suk-yeol administration, which, of course, has been very openly uh, conservative. Uh, they uh, it's well known for its hawkish hardline North Korea policy. So like Sebyuk said, again, it's uh, North Korea is trying to gain an upper hand before any kind of negotiations can begin with Seoul or Washington. And another thing I want to point out is that this uh, launch came um, while China's nuclear envoy Yu ah. Xiaoming's visit to Seoul. So this just shows, uh, I think, that North Korea is taking advantage of the biggest rift between the U.S. and Russia, as well as China, since the Cold War era. So I think it's once again sticking to its brinkmanship tactic, uh, showing, uh, driving things to the extreme, showing the world, showing off to the world its uh, military capabilities. Uh, once again, showing off its brink, brinkmanship tactic because yeah, yeah. Uh, it has nothing much left to lose. You know, I saw a saying 
uh, when I was when I had a chance to speak to uh, Professor Robert Kelly earlier this uh, week that uh, you know Russia, uh, you know their threats of uh, nuclear weapons use uh, with the Ukraine war, uh, and the fact that the reason why you know the United States and many some of the other uh, allies of Ukraine aren't you going you know sending armies and military uh, men into uh, Ukraine to help them is because again Russia has so much nuclear weapons and they could use that any time. And so I think North Korea, by seeing that, I, I don't think nuke, North Korea is going to now decide, you know what, uh, we are going to denuclearize. I think that's off the table now. I think they, they learned from Russia that, I mean, they need these uh, nuclear weapons. But how else can they resolve, I guess, uh, you know, the issue of uh, you know, North Korea's nuclear weapons uh, testing and, uh, you know, their capabilities and so forth, I think is the big task moving forward with the next uh, UN administration. But uh, what about yourself, uh, Sebiak? I, I actually forgot that, uh, you know, we had the top uh, nuclear envoy of China come into Seoul here. Uh, what's your take on this? What's behind North Korea's latest provocation? Well, apparently North Korea is trying to see the new administration, how they will respond to its provocation before it devises its own strategy, before playing their cards. Yeah. Especially when President-elect Yoon mentioned about a possible preemptive strike if Pyongyang continues its military provocations. So the the UN administration seems so far to take hardline stance on North Korea's any military provocations. So, well, no wonder today's launch came right before UN's inauguration. Yeah, it's almost like they're giving them time, right? To listen, we'll give you a week uh, to decide on what you're going to do about us. Uh, we are going to send this missile. There's always a reason. And so, yeah, it does seem like one number one, again, it has to do with, uh, you know, China's nuclear envoy, Yu Xiaoming, coming to Seoul for talks. But also, uh, it is kind of giving uh, the UN administration more. I guess uh, gives them a you know a better reason for why they should put you know North Korea at the top of their priority, especially with uh, Joe Biden uh, coming to Korea for talks, and whether or not that's going to be at the top of the agenda uh, remains to be seen just yet. But again, as uh, North Korea's missile provocations do continue, efforts to resume dialogue also continue in many different fronts. Uh, but today, the archives of early inter-Korean dialogue during the 1970s having been unveiled to the public for the very first time, I found this quite interesting. Tell Tell us more about this. That's right. The Unification Ministry disclosed today a total of around 1,650 pages of dossier on the inter-Korean talks conducted from August 1970 to August 1972. The dossiers have been kept secret for half a century. They feature the first point of contact between South and North Korean Red Cross delegates since the peninsula was divided in 1945 after World War II, plus some 25 preliminary talks held to set the stage for the actual inter-Korean Red Cross talks during that period. Can you guys guess what the first thing they said was when delegates from South and North Korea met for the first time in 26 years after Korea was divided in half? I feel like it's something so simple, like, how are you doing? Or how were you? Or it's something like, you've just sent spines. Uh, chills down my spine. Is that what it was? You got it exactly <laughs> I'm right. I'm sorry, Sebi, you didn't get a chance. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, it was nothing special. South Korean delegate first asked to North Korean delegates, 안녕하십니까? That mm. was the very first thing they said. And North Korea responded, uh, it's nice to meet fellow countrymen. Mm. So this was their uh, very brief encounter. And the first historic meeting ended in just three minutes 
after exchanging documents and briefly discussing the official names of each Red Cross organizations from the South and the North. But this very short three-minute meeting paved the way for 600 more inter-Korean talks to date, including five inter-Korean summits. Now back to the unveiled dossier. Around a quarter of the records are censored, but they include the agreement to establish an inter-Korean hotline and also working-level meetings on agenda drafts and procedures, which later shaped reunions of separated families. The records can be accessed by visiting the archives reference room of the Office of Inter-Korean Dialogue, the National Institute for Unification Center, and the Information Center on North Korea located in Seoul. The Unification Ministry says the move is aimed at fulfilling citizens' right to know and to enhance transparency of the government's North Korea policy. The ministry plans to make archives of inter-Korean talks more accessible to the public in accordance with regulations and aims to unveil more dossiers from 1970 to 1981 within this year. To be honest with you, I would love to know what the uh, the discussions were about to when uh, President Moon Jae-in and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un had a sit-down one-on-one by themselves privately and some of the things that they discussed. I know they were reading lips uh, trying to figure out what they're talking about, but obviously stuff like that uh, will just never be unveiled. Uh, but it does seem like the U.S. is putting uh, planning to put an additional North Korea sanctions proposal to vote during the UNSC meeting slated for May this month. Uh, this came in response to Pyongyang's latest string of intercontinental ballistic missile testing. And of course, we talked about the one that took place earlier today, but still uh, no report on whether or not it is an ICBM. Nevertheless, uh, tell us more about this, Sebyuk. So the U.S. would like the U.N. Security Council to vote during May to further sanction North Korea over its renewed ballistic missile launches. And this is according to the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Uh, so the U.S. circulated an initial draft resolution to the 15-member council last month uh, that proposed banning tobacco and halving oil exports to North Korea and blacklisting the Lazarus hacking group. While some are saying such a proposed ban on tobacco aimed at Kim Jong-un as he's known to be a heavy smoker. Uh, but Russia and China have already signaled opposition to boosting sanctions. Uh, during a UNSC meeting held in March, uh, China said no party should take any action that would lead to great tensions, but rather should offer an attractive proposal that can pave the way for early resumed dialogue. Uh, with the two parties' oppositions, the March UNSC meeting ended without any fruitful outcome, uh, and a Security Council resolution needs not Nine yes votes to pass without a veto by Russia, China, France, Britain, or the U.S. So if Russia and China are to veto it, uh, the resolution in no way can be passed. Well, still Ambassador Thomas Greenfield told reporters when asked if she would put it to a vote uh, that Washington plans to move forward with the resolution during this month meeting when the U.S. is president of the council. Uh, she said the U.S. is very concerned about the situation where Pyongyang is ceaselessly carrying out their missile test launches, saying its goal is to keep the council unified in condemning those actions by North Korea. And this time, too, the Kim Jong-un regime, regime is highly likely to evade some UN sanctions, but at least the international community is steadily calling for a stop to such threatening actions done by Pyongyang. Yeah, I mean, again, because you have Russia and China, it's highly unlikely that this is going to pass. Russia, again, uh, who have been getting sanctioned left and right by the U.S. and its allies, you know, China, longtime ally of North Korea, uh, they're certainly going to probably veto it. And they're the two countries that are always kind of against uh, some of these uh, UNSC sanctions that are put in place. I mean, 
mean, guys, think about it. North Korea launched another intercontinental ballistic missile when yeah. China's top nuclear envoy visited Seoul to talk about North Korea provocations. This yeah. basically shows that North Korea knows that China will have its back no matter what. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You make a very good point with this, right? I think any other uh, country... Um, if you know one of the nuclear envoys of any other country uh, came and then you know they started firing uh, missiles, I think it would be a problem. <laughs> You're right there with China; uh, it's the other way around. So yeah, there, there's no way this is going to be passed, unfortunately. Uh, in the meantime, South Korea and Japan having held their first working-level diplomatic consultations in six months, just a week ahead of the launch of the new Yoon Suk Yeol administration. Tan, can you tell us what was being discussed there? Right, South Korea's Director General for Asia and Pacific Affairs Lee Sang Yeol and his Japanese counterpart Takehiro. Nakoshi met in Seoul on Tuesday, where they shared views on current Seoul-Tokyo relations and pending issues ahead of South Korea's launch of a new government. The two agreed to continue diplomatic talks to mend frayed ties, vowing close communication. According to diplomatic sources, the two also agreed to seize the launch of the Yun administration as an opportunity to improve Seoul-Tokyo relations. Seoul-Tokyo relations have deteriorated in recent years over thorny issues of Japan's wartime forced labor and sexual slavery, as well as its export curbs against South Korea. And speaking of the unresolved issue of Japan's sexual enslavement of Korean women, Kim Yang-ju, another of the few surviving victims, died in the southeastern city of Changwon on Monday. She was 98. Born in 1924, she was lured by a false promise of employment in China during World War II and was forced to work at Japanese military brothels there. Her death brings the number of total surviving victims to just 11. Now, the Minister of Gender Equality and Family, Chong Yong-e, visited the parlor to pay tribute while flowers were sent by President Moon Jae-in and President-elect Yoon song yeol of course, uh, Funakoshi doubles as Japan's chief nuclear negotiator and also met with his South Korean counterpart, Nogi Duck, for a luncheon today. So uh, what do we know in regards to this meeting then? Well, they condemned the missile launch, uh, calling it a violation of multiple U.N. Security Council resolutions that threatens the entire international community. They also vowed to continue concerted efforts in seeking global countermeasures and urged North Korea to come back to the negotiating table. All right, there you have it. Uh, we're going to turn our focus now to domestic politics. A lot of focus on this uh, throughout this past week and even today, uh, as we know that we have the confirmation meeting for the incoming cabinet for the Yoon suk uh, administration. The National Assembly, though, having adopted confirmation hearing reports for Deputy Prime Minister uh, for Economic Affairs and Finance Minister nominee. Uh, of course, he doubles in those two roles. We're talking about Chu Gyeong-ho. Tan, uh, tell us more about this as well. Right, so the National Assembly's Finance Committee has approved a confirmation hearing report for Finance Minister nominee Chu Gyeong-ho without requiring a vote. Now, with the approval on Tuesday, Chu became the third cabinet nominee of the incoming administration to make it through the hearing process following Environment Minister nominee Han Hua-jin and Science Minister nominee Yi Jong-ho. In its report, the Finance Committee noted Chu's experience in state affairs and his ability to pursue economic policies. It also mentioned his commitment to overcoming low growth and polarization through tax and regulatory reforms, partnered with an economy led by the market, private sector, and businesses. The report said that based on a comprehensive review, lawmakers have agreed the nominee is fit to serve as finance chief. 
But it pointed out that some members criticized Chu's change in his policy stance on taxation and controversy surrounding the sale of the Korea Exchange Bank to U.S. equity fund Lone Star decades ago. I mean, uh, it's it's been quite bumpy uh, for some of these nominees, right? I think we talked about this, uh, but uh, we had the education minister nominee, of course, stepping down over some uh, power abuse scandals there. But uh, uh, what about some of the other hearing procedures for the other nominees? I, I think the big one, again, is the mm-hmm. approval for the prime minister nominee, right, mm-hmm. Han Because this is, I mean, literally the only one that really needs the, uh, the approval from the, the National Assembly. So let's get the updates for that. Hearings were held today for Defense Minister nominee Lee Jong-sub, Labor Minister nominee Lee Jong-sik, and Oceans and Fisheries Minister nominee Cho Seung-hwan. Now, South Korea's countermeasures against North Korea's missile provocations, additional deployment of THAAD missile defense system, as well as the raise in the Korean Army's monthly salary, as well as the relocation of the presidential office, as well as the uh, uh, the uh, amount and the expenses that are needed to rearrange uh, the defense ministry's compound accordingly were some of the hotly contested issues at the hearing. But the hearing for a Justice Minister nominee Han Dong-hun initially scheduled for today was pushed back to Monday with the ruling Democratic Party citing Han's failure to submit requested data. The key issue is, of course, like you mentioned, SJ, the approval of Prime Minister nominee Han Dok-su, who completed his hearing yesterday. The ruling DP is still up in arms, urging him to voluntarily step down, while the main opposition People Power Party retorted the Democratic Party will face a backlash if it continues to stand in the way of the incoming government. Han faces several allegations, including that he was given special treatment for having served in many high-ranking government positions. And as for Education Minister nominee Kim In-chol, he withdrew from running for the post yesterday, saying that he is to blame for everything and that he won't make any excuses. It was mired in controversy that his wife, his son, as well as his daughter all received a scholarship from a nonprofit organization jointly supported by the U.S. and the South Korean governments called the Fulbright Scholarship. He had served as the president of the Korea Fulbright Alumni Association from 2012 to 2015. All the more controversial because, again, you're talking about someone that was tapped as the, the education minister. <laughs> That's right. right? I mean, that, so, which is why it's so controversial and uh, which is probably the reason why he had to step down here. Uh, so, the list of this year's uh, top 500 companies among the local corporations that were released here. Uh, it is some interesting uh, names that we're seeing because we're seeing new names. But uh, but if you walk us through the list, uh, I guessing at the top is going to be Samsung Electronics. But nevertheless, let's get a, a list of some of the top uh, corporations. Yeah, so you got that right. Uh, global tech giant Samsung Electronics Corporation retained the number one spot on the list with its top line coming to 279.6 trillion won or 221 billion US dollars. And leading automaker Hyundai Motor maintained a second spot with sales of 117.6 trillion won and still uh, 
Postco, yeah. <laughs> Postco Holdings leaped to third place in 2021 from sixth a year earlier, and LG Electronics placed fourth, trailed by number two automaker Kia Corporation. And semiconductor and rechargeable battery makers have also saw their increase in sales thanks to the fourth industrial revolution. A chip giant SK Hynix ranked eighth, and chemical maker LG Chem took the ninth spot of four and six spots from the year before, respectively. And companies selling petroleum products were also named on the top tier of the list. Uh, LG Caltex of 13 at 12th, SK Oil ranked 21st, and this came as their revenue jumped quiet noticeably thanks to a recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as soaring global energy prices. Yeah, I mean, so all these other companies, it's really not surprising, to be honest with you. Um, But what is I guess even with this, it's not really uh, surprising, but it's interesting. Uh, the list of, you know, the list featuring new names, new companies, very untraditional, so to speak, uh, industries like entertainment and uh, even cryptocurrency, which kind of shows you how big the market is now. So let's, uh, tell us about that. All right. So what's noteworthy about this year's list is that we can find the names of some unconventional fields such as K-pop and cryptocurrency related companies as they have achieved significant growth in their revenue last year. So new entrants on the list include Tunamu, the operator of Upbitch, the country's largest cryptocurrency exchange by transaction value, and K-pop powerhouse Hype, the agency of K-pop sensation BTS. And Tunamu ranked 168th with sales of 3.7 trillion won, with Hype placing 447th with 1.3 trillion. As we head more into the fourth industrial revolution and see changes in the world of entertainment and cryptocurrencies, we can expect more and more uh, newly emerging businesses and companies in the coming years. Yeah, you know, cryptocurrency markets, I think, I, you know, that's not so surprising. But I mean, to have an entertainment company in this list is mm-hmm. remarkable. I mean, I know it's hype, but, you know, the you know entertainment company for uh, BTS. But I mean, this is big, big figures that we're looking at here. Uh, but figures that are decreasing, thankfully, are the COVID-19 daily figures here. We are going to jump into that. So let's get the latest updates on the figures that came in earlier this morning. Sebyuk. Uh, South Korea registered fewer than 50,000 new COVID-19 cases on Wednesday amid the continued recession of the Omicron wave. Uh, the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency announced that 49,064 cases were compiled throughout the previous day, including 29 from overseas. Uh, the latest number is down by some 27,000 from a week ago and around 2,000 cases fewer than Tuesday. And for the 14th consecutive day, the daily figure remained below 100,000. Uh, the number of COVID-19 patients in critical care rose by 15 from Tuesday to 432, but stayed in the 400s for the fifth consecutive day. Uh, 72 virus-induced deaths up 23 from a day ago were newly reported. With that, the fatality rate remains at 0.13%. Uh, the occupancy rate of ICU beds for critically ill patients nationwide dropped by 1.3 percentage points to stand at 23.9%. Yeah, not to mention, I also heard reports that uh, no one is now waiting for hospital beds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that's obviously very good news. We are certainly seeing that things are finally uh, settling down here, but with concerns over another possible surge in COVID-19 cases. I think it's almost inevitable, to be honest with you. And what we're really worried about is come fall and winter, what's going to happen? The government has rolled out a set of measures to support companies to set up a work-from-home system. This is now the big 
topic of discussion moving forward because there's already a lot of workers out there calling for a more work from home system. Uh, Jeju and Yangyang airports are also set to welcome visa-free foreign tourists. Let's get more information on these. Uh, the South Korean government revealed a set of measures to support companies to implement the work from home program as more and more businesses are expected to gradually move to remote work. So according to the plan, the government will offer various consultations such as on the HR management and to help companies to build the IT infrastructure necessary for building a remote working environment, the government will support up to 20 million won. Uh, meanwhile, tourism in S- uh, South Korea is ready to boom again after two and a half years of travel restrictions. Uh, since 2002, the country has implemented a visa-free system under which all foreign visitors, except for those from 24 countries, including Syria, designated by the Justice Minister, can stay on Jeju for up to 30 days without a visa. And two years after the system was suspended due to the pandemic, now Jeju is set to resume the program from June 1st, and this came after two visa waiver requests made by the provincial government in February and April this year. Uh, the visa-free program will also be put in place at Yangyang International Airport in Gangwon-do province for travelers from June 1st as well, and group tours with five or more travelers from Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Mongolia arriving through Yangyang International Airport on the East Coast can also stay in the country for up to 30 days without a Guys, I want to kind of talk about uh, this global trend that's happening right now. Uh, Obviously, a lot of companies, a lot of workers work from home, uh, even for some of us, uh, myself and Tan included, when we had COVID, uh, we had the privilege of working from home, uh, thanks to some of the technology set in place by Arirang. But again, even despite the fact that the pandemic is now towards the tail end of things and we are shifting into the new norm, the post-pandemic, a lot of workers are calling for more options when it comes to working from home. So I want to get your thoughts on, you know, uh, working from home remotely. Uh, should companies move to this full-fledged remote working format uh, moving forward here? Tan, let's start off with you. You know, according to a recent survey conducted by the Stanford University on the productivity of working from home, productivity output rose actually by 13 percent. Uh, it um, analyzed that this equals to about $2,000 in extra outcome per employee. So there is definitely the bright side, the upside of working from home. But it also said that because of the limits that we face when working from home, such as reduced efficiency of communication with team members and, yeah. uh, of course, the possible distractions, especially when you have kids, yeah. it's... Uh, basically impossible to concentrate 100% on on your laptop. Uh, And so I think it'll be a little bit challenging and a little bit unrealistic as well for all the employees across the world to shift to working from home system 100%. Uh, but so I would say I would say the uh, the the appropriate portion of working from home uh, should be left at about 20 to 30 percent of the total number of employee okay. at a workplace, because in, in case of emergency yeah, or it yeah. should another round of pandemic uh, emerge across the world. So um, long story short, I think it's uh, a, a little too early. I know that companies like Twitter have promised a uh, permanent permission of 
pro- uh, permanent working from home yeah. for employees who who want to. Uh, and companies like Facebook has also promised that up to 50% can work from home uh, regardless of the pandemic situation. But these are all IT firms we're talking about. Right. And so I think it all will depend a lot on the nature and different characteristics of workplaces as well. Uh, the other controversy, I'm glad you brought up uh, Twitter because initially I think when Twitter brought up the fact that they could go 100% remote, uh, they also brought up the idea of a pay cut because they're saying, well, I mean, you're working from home. Uh, you're not coming into the office. Uh, so that means that, you know, you might be working less. Who knows? We can't be watching you 20, you know, throughout the, the eight hour mm-hmm. shift that you're working. So we don't know if you're doing something else. We don't know if you're, you know, pretending to work and things like that. So we need to do a pay cut, which, you know, led to an uproar because they were saying that workers were still efficient despite the fact that, you know, they were working from right. Uh, home, right? Uh, Sebyak, what about yourself? Uh, what do you think? Should companies kind of move to a full-fledged remote working format? Well, shifting to remote or hybrid work has uh, become undeniably global trends. Well, a number of countries have amended some acts and laws to ensure workers' remote work, uh, like EU's Framework Agreement on Telework back in 2002 and Telework Enhancement Act in 2010 during the Obama administration. And a growing number of companies around the world, like Airbnb, and there won't be any pay cut. And it also introduced the idea of vacation, work plus vacation, where workers and employees can decide where to work, like in terms of country. And Meta, Amazon and South Korea's SK Naver, they are shifting to remote work. You know, we call Chetekumu here in South Korea, which literally means work from home. But I think the whole point of Chetekumu right here is it kind of falls under the bigger category of remote work, which aims to help people use their time for work and life in a more flexible way. So I strongly believe spending time meaninglessly sitting in front of a office desk from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday to Friday when you're done with your task you're supposed to do for the work, but still you have to spend a whole time there. So the as soon as you're done with your work, you should be able to enjoy your life, whatever is out there. <laughs> I'm the we can generation. really feel yeah. her, can't we, SK? Yeah. So the whole point is that companies should allow workers to use their time more flexibly. So, But there are a few concerns, like some people complain about them being unable to separate work and life because they do both at one place, which is home. And this kind of goes along with what Talon just mentioned earlier, uh, because some might living in a remote work unfriendly environment. So um, in that case, one good alternative would be office uh, offices like uh, built in major districts so the employees can choose where to work. Okay. I, I, I mean... I, I don't know what the difference is if you're you know choosing the office, but I definitely see the pros and cons of uh, working from home. I think the biggest thing that I you know most people uh, don't talk well actually they do talk about. So let's say you live in a certain area and you have to use public transport. Most people use public transportation to go to work because the traffic is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They just not they're just not going to drive to mm-hmm. work even if they have a car. Now, granted, let's say I, I had a chance to use the public transportation for the first time to come to Arirang uh, last Friday. Uh, it usually takes me 30 minutes to drive from my house to Arirang. Uh, taking the public transportation, it took an hour and 10 minutes. Oh. Right? So using that time, if you're working from home and you don't, I don't have to you know, move around for an hour and 10 minutes, that's hour and 10 minutes more that I can sleep. Also put into consideration the, you know, the shower, the makeup, whatever. I, I mean, I don't put on makeup. <laughs> for, you know, for, I guess, female employees, that also saves, I don't know how long it takes time to mm-hmm. do all that stuff, maybe an hour. 
that's another hour that you can use to spend uh, time to sleep maybe right sleep uh, you know wake up a little bit late later you're more refreshed right so you're, you're you're better capable of working instead of you know coming to work all like oh i'm so tired and you know trying to wake up drinking coffee and things like that that's the good thing but on the flip side though my biggest concern is are they really working from home? <laughs> right. Like I, I hear some people who are working from home and, you know, they tell me things like, oh, you know, I have two uh, computer screens and the other screen I'm mm. playing games mm. and with the other screen I'm working, but they have no idea. And I'm just like, I mean, so, you know, how can, I guess, employers really trust them? So there is the pros and cons of it. Mm. I like what Arirang, if there is an option to do things moving forward, I like what the Arirang news team is doing. Is What they're doing is they do a rotational system mm -hmm. Mm. where you know how like, you know, town I'm sure you know as well because you've worked there, uh, the early morning shifts. Right. Th those are rough, mm -hmm. right? You have to come into work at like 5 a.m. So they do rotational where you have one person who's in the office and the other person who can work from home. Mm. So they don't have to come into work to work the early mornings. They just do all because, you know, the ANS, the, the news system, mm. all that stuff is in their laptop at home. And so I think that's what we should do moving forward maybe i like the percentage the proportion that you put in mm -hmm. the 20 30 percent right and then to make it equal because then you're going to go well then who gets to work from home and who doesn't right do like a rotational mm. system where 20 to 30 percent of the people mm. are actually working from home makes everyone i guess happy in that way mm -hmm. i mean there's there's definitely pros and cons to be honest with you uh, but another thing that has really <laughs> changed for the worse i don't know if you guys felt this but uh I had a really hard time getting a cab uh, last Friday when I had a late night out. Uh, that Kakao taxi application doesn't work. I had to get one of those black taxis, which are super expensive. You know, my husband once came home at 2 a.m. and he told me that the the party was over at midnight. So it took him oh. two hours to get a cab. That's a pretty good excuse to use. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to use that next time. No, he's and he was probably not lying. It's it's true. No. Um, there's absolutely no cabs late at night. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I heard was because uh, because of the lack of uh, you know need for taxi drivers because of all the curfews, they've shifted to other jobs. But again, nighttime taxi shortage becoming a huge problem here in the country. But now that things are back to normal, uh, what are we looking at here? What's new new on the uh, taxi front end? Well, some good news for all those who enjoy their nightlives in the capital. In line with lifting of all social distancing measures, the government has announced plans to expand the supply of nighttime cabs by 3,000 units. Now, wow. this is part of the Seoul City government's taxi supply expansion plan unveiled today. The Seoul government said some 24,000 taxes are needed to meet the demands between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., but currently there are only about 20,000 cabs in service. So they plan to increase the number of nighttime cabs by 3,000 by applying nighttime taxi fare from 5 p.m. Now, the nighttime fare is applied from 9 p.m. currently, so the government is obviously attempting to attract more taxi drivers back to nighttime services by expanding the time window of the nighttime fares by four hours. The Seoul City government says it's seeking every means to meet the surging demands of nighttime taxi rides with the lifting of business curfews and will promptly drop countermeasures against the inconveniences of the citizens. 
Now, amid worsening profitability stemming from a pandemic-driven plunge in demand coupled with rising gas prices, many taxi drivers have refused to work late at night, causing a huge shortage in nighttime taxes. I mean, there's got to be some benefits for them, right? Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a problem. I think this is one of those things I think we didn't really see coming, uh, and uh, it's really hitting a lot of people hard there. Uh, we're going to move over to Shanghai, where a strict lockdown has been in place for over a month across the city there. Uh, there was a sudden news about the death of a South Korean national living in the Chinese city. Tan, what do we learn so far from well, this news? Unfortunately, not much is known about okay. the death. We're still waiting to hear the exact cause of the death, but according to sources in Shanghai, locals are saying that the South Korean man in his 40s did not die from COVID-19. He lived in an apartment near the Koreatown in Minhang District in Shanghai, where a strict lockdown has been imposed for over a month. His body was found at home after local authorities went to find him when he didn't show up for a mandatory COVID testing. The Korean embassy in Shanghai said they've requested a transparent investigation to local police and promised to do its best to support his funeral. According to health authorities in Shanghai, COVID infections are on a downward trend in the city, reporting 260 new infections and roughly 4,720 asymptomatic COVID patients yesterday. All right. Unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for today. But guys, thank you very much for your report and your insights on some of these issues. Stay safe and we'll see you guys again. Thank Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.